Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome back to another episode of Around the Coin. We have the three of us here today, and this is episode number 92, Faisal and Brian. Uh, Faisal, how are you today? Good morning. Doing good. Yourself inching closer to the 100 mark. Excited about that? I know. We have to think about what we want to do special for that event, for that that episode. We could do it in Vegas and then just not tell (laughs) anyone about it. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) It's true. Yeah, just as a reminder, we are all... Located uh, in in faraway lands from each other, uh, Brian down in southern of the Southern California, me over in Santa Monica and Fessel and uh, Pakistan. So we have yet to do an episode together. So that would be interesting. Mm. Brian, how you been? Doing wonderful, gentlemen. Good morning, and excited to see show one hundred. So yeah, we got a we got a plan for that. <clears throat> so how was everybody's week? It was great, absolutely. Pretty well. Yeah, we we got a good uh, midweek interview in with uh, with Drew, uh, which I really enjoyed. Brian and I uh, had a fantastic conversation. Everything from the 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 initial founding of M Foundry, and then later the sale of the company for 170 million dollars. Uh, what an amazing story Drew has, and uh, he's also an avid surfer and astrophysicist. As a as a hobby, so we had some fantastic topics to talk about. Of course, just not enough time, as always. Yeah, you folks who tune in, it was a really good show. It's a, a short one, but uh, Drew is an incredibly interesting guy. You know, and I, I, I tell Mike and Faisal this all the time. Most of the people that I think that are extremely deep into payments have some kind of physics or astrophysics background. It's um it's incredible to me actually. I I, I love it. Yeah, you know, I I come and visit these folks and we talk payments and then we you know spend hours talking about astrophysics, payments and then hours of astrophysics. So it's uh it's funny. And if you go all the way back to Elon Musk, um, you know, an early payments guy, very, very uh driven by astrophysics and what technology. is it? Do you think it's the is it is it the complexity of astrophysics that yeah, I mean payments has to be one of the most complex industries across the world. Uh, do you think there's just commonality between people who are attracted to complex topics and challenges? 
I think, I that think is. so. Definitely. Yeah, I I think most of us that are really into payments from the from the angle that, you know, generally our listeners are from, not coming from like say the Wharton School of Business and crunching numbers, but more from the technology. And we get into the other aspects of numbers, but we get it through the technology angle. Yeah, more we, from we the sciences angle, you know? Exactly. So we tend to look at this in a much different way. Uh, I notice a lot of my colleagues that you know, are nerding into this, are into machine learning. You know, We're all learning and advancing machine learning technologies and languages. I was up late last night working a, a, a machine learning, learning algorithm. I, I, uh, I think it's going to be an, a, an amazing, uh, amazing thing. And uh, also up late last night, uh, finishing touches on South by Southwest food truck tracking. You guys got to check this out. Um, uh, Payfinders is going to be tracking approximately 200 food trucks at South by Southwest. That's a, that's a mid-March food and technology interactive show in Austin, Texas. And uh, one of the biggest quagmires with mobile merchants is letting the world know where they are and also letting them know just what payment types that are available. For example, there's still a lot of food trucks that do not accept credit cards. Uh, there's still a lot of food trucks that don't accept Apple Pay. We're tracking 200 in Austin. It very, it very well may be a lot more than that. Um, Clover is doing exceedingly well. Pay, Pay Anywhere is doing exceedingly well, Square, in getting these uh, food trucks. But I think Clover's got to jump on all of them. Uh, I think they're, well, at least from my feedback from the uh, food trucks, about 70, 80% of them are using Clover Mini to, and, and regular Clover to accept Apple Pay at these uh, locations. So it's interesting. Uh, Payfinder's algorithm is very uh, interesting because it will track uh, the activity of these trucks in real time. So if they move mid-afternoon, late evening, uh, early uh, a.m., uh, you'll be able to know about it. And you'll also get the live menu. So, so if, I I'm, if, I'm, a, if I'm a food truck and I'm listening or I hear about this, would I just download the Payfinder's app? register my business and then people can find me well it's uh it's right now in a beta test mode so you have to contact me old-fashioned way it can be email text i don't care through the show twitter uh use the twitter no it doesn't matter you you just let me know you have a food truck if you want to supply a menu i'll digitalize it it'll be presented in real time and uh, you'll log into the app in a most unusual and unique way that nobody knows about yet. And this allows you to broadcast your location. It is only, um, it is only in, a, um, in a commercial setting that that will ever happen. And uh, the current uh, consumer app can be converted into uh, a business app within uh, one password and login. So I already built that into the structure of PayFinders. Gosh, almost a year ago was one of my early premises, and there's a lot mm. more coming with this. So exciting. interesting, you know. As we kind of talk about AI uh, and and the interests across, you know, various types of physics, it's the interest as of late. The Boston Dynamics robot. We have to mention yeah. this. This is, I think, the the rude awakening to everyone that uh, that the conversations around AI and the implications of robots that are you know really in- integrated into our lives uh, may become a reality quicker than we may have expected um, I-, I thought that video was just extremely impressive showing the capabilities of the human-like robot walking around and then uh, of course there was I don't know if you guys saw it but there was a fantastic yeah. piece on the John Daly show <laughs> yeah. about yeah. 
uh, about you know the humans picking on the robots, and this would be the equivalent to Roots before the robots revolt. Well, and yeah, you know, what was it? I think it was the Skynet uh, Cyberdyne systems meme that they had on the internet, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, gentlemen, we're at the uh, precipice of technology here. I mean, we look at stuff like this, and we imagine, oh, it's it's somewhere off into the future. Uh, I think history is going to record that that particular video was the beginning of people waking up. You know, if you look at that part of the video where there was a bit of a taunting going on, uh, you know, you kind of kick it and you, you know, and, and a guy was using a <laughs> hockey stick. They it, did make it, it look unnecessarily uh, like, it, like it was. It was bullying. It, it looked like bullying. But here's the interesting part. The interesting part is. Imagine a world where these are coming off a conveyor line that makes iPhones. Uh, imagine a world where there are more of these than there are enlisted folks in the army. And, you know, one could argue in some kind of science fiction, you know, fantasy, the robots will fight the robots. That's not what robot war is going to be about. Robot war is going to be about dominating a particular piece of land and overtaking those assets. And sometimes humans are at the assets and sometimes not. But the, the fact that this can be replicated, even the technology we've seen with Boston Dynamics, if it was replicated on mass scale and deployed, it would be exceedingly difficult for uh, people to respond to that even with I mean, just, some it just, to me, it, it just screams out. It just screams out a need for peace more than ever. Because when you see something like that, you're like, that could, that could, to your point, that could be used for malicious intent uh, from from large scale, you know, com- uh, countries. It will be. It will be used. It will be. There is not a single technology that is not being used for malicious at- intent. The problem is, is Moore's law is moving faster than hum- humanity has been able to cope. We're, we're still using the same set of skills that got us through the Dark Ages and it's got us through the Italian Renaissance. You know, and the thing that we're hoping for as far as humanity to evolve, that's not going to happen in, in a generation or two. It's going to take epochs. And in, a, in the meantime, as technologists, we have to be careful about what we wish for. Self-driving cars... You know, robots to do this and that. And, mm. you know, I, I do machine learning. I, you know, we all have. Yeah, you really have to be aware. There's a, yeah. there's a piece that, um, that a, a number of the top entrepreneurs, scientists of the day, Elon, uh, Elon Musk to, you know, uh, who else? Stephen Hawking put together Steve Wozniak. There's a, uh, there's an open letter. We'll include this in the show notes, but it's an open letter on the uh, it's called research Propri- uh, priorities for robust and beneficial artificial intelligence. And to your point, it is exactly around this topic. Saying once these things start to emerge, what are we going to do? Are we are we literally going to not even think twice and just send them into the front line of the army, or do we or do we have enough forethought to? Well, Mike, uh, there won't even be a front line. There won't even be a front line. See, the reality is the only time that uh, any armies have been hesitant is when they would inflict huge casualties to their own men and women, but mostly men. And once that gets taken out of the equation and you can reproduce these uh, thousands and thousands at a time on a production line, it's really not a front line. It, it, It is literally about who has more and who's willing to get more crazy about using it. And then the next step is, well, 
once you have sentient intelligence, or at least the machines believe that they have sentient intelligence, it doesn't see this is a big problem with artificial intelligence. It doesn't matter whether the machines have it or don't have it. It's whether they have the volition to believe that they do. And that is fairly easy to algorithmically program. And all it has to do is it's centered around the, the, the will to survive and the will to uh, prosper. You take those two, Isaac Asimov wrote about this, you know, almost uh, half a century ago. Once you put the, the, the desire to thrive and prosper and you connect it into other mechanisms for, let's call, accounting functions so that you don't waste certain things of value and you start tying those things together with what you believe are proper ethics, I got to tell you, most people don't really understand what the terminology of what ethics really means. It's not in the vernacular that, that most technologists will use. It's not in the vernacular that I'm using in most of the time in common uh, language. It's about a deep-seated set of principles that come from a philosophical discourse. And it sounds all cushy. It sounds all, you know, gosh, that's what I skipped in my uh, liberal arts at, at, at university. But the problem is by not being informed by what this stuff is, what, what humanity means and why we do certain things that we do. Uh, why does a mom sacrifice? You know, she could die during labor. Why does a dad sacrifice? You know, it's hard to program that algorithmically into a machine. And so that forms our, th those things are so mixed into our DNA, if you will, we don't even know it exists. We just assume it to be there right, like oxygen. Right, right. But yeah. once you see it removed in artificial life, you'll know what it feels like because mm -hmm. now it's an accounting function. What is more valuable? The, the, the many outweigh the needs of the individual is what will wind up happening. And it, is, it makes perfect logical sense yeah. under a machine learning environment. So that's all I'm saying. It, it, it is, it is, it's yeah, a complex it is interesting. Time. It is. There's a, there's an organization called the future of life, uh, of which Elon Musk recently donated $10 million yeah. to that, you know, essentially is with this mission to just be aware. It says their headliner is technology is giving life to the potential, uh, giving life the potential to flourish like never before or self-destruct, so let's make a difference. And I think, you know, by the, the dollar's contribution there, you can, you can tell that that's important to Elon, and he certainly is in a position to uh, sort of view this from a macro perspective from being Absolutely. in you know, many different con uh, countries and companies. So I, 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 think it's a, I think it's a real issue, uh, the one that could sneak up on us. It's one of those cases where it may or may not uh, be an impact in the short or long term, but eventually it will, and it's like when you're you driving that fast into a wall... Right, you got to think about this. So I, I wish there was even more philosophical thought from our political leaders around this uh, well, than there probably is. But you know, that's it, it has to. It has to start with our, us technologists, and all we need to do is go around Facebook and Twitter and look at some of the leading minds of technology, what they're saying about uh, you know the singularity, and I can't wait until my body is in a machine. And you know, the thing about that is. If you look at it from a purely mechanistic standpoint, it sounds brilliantly beautiful. But when you understand what the long-term implications that, that presents, uh, you know, it is potentially horrific to what we currently consider humanity. Now, one there's, would argue a, that there, we're evolving. As a side note, there's a, there's, a, there's a great show called Black Mirror. I don't know if you guys oh, have yeah. seen this. 
where they're yes. yeah, essentially projecting into the future the ramifications of some of these uh, technologies or the implications of how they integrate with our daily lives. And there's this one that's particularly interesting around the contacts. So there's these contacts you wear and they record your day and then you can go back later and just you know flip it on and watch anything that you previously experienced throughout the day. And it showed one example of people going through checkpoint security at the airport and they would just, you know, basically you would give them a copy of what you did for the last 24 hours or however long you were in that country and they just speed through and they watch everything, literally everything you did. And and you're like, well, I, I can see the philosoph- uh, philosophy there because they do it already. They ask you where you were, where you're staying. But, yeah, you know, I got, I got, not, I got nothing not to hide. I got nothing to hide, so why can't they see what I did the last 30 (laughs) years of my life, right? So, you know, the the, the whole thing is there's a lot of – and this coincides with what's going on with Apple. Uh, You know, it it coincides with what we're talking about with encryption and whether – you know, we've briefly touched upon the complexities of what this represents. But it's all happening much faster, but it's happening in a world where – most of the most informed technologists have have never been in a level where they have the least amount of understanding of history. Nothing against my colleagues. I spend a lot of time in the Silicon Valley, a lot of tech people. But one of the things that is always literally brings me to tears sometimes is their inability to understand or respect what history represents. And yeah. I, I can't stress how important that is. Because history will inform how we're going to have to deal with what's going on around us right this moment, philosophically, politically. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, Brian, one, I think that's a large part of your success is around that. Um, I do want to mention uh, Kyle Hill, my co-founder, will be speaking at South by Southwest. Wow. So if you're at the event, uh, that's in a couple weeks, uh, stop by the booth, check it out. It's at the healthcare wow. area. Uh, it's called technology in the golden years, how tech changes aging. So it'll be interesting. Kyle's bringing his dad on the show. Uh, his dad, Anthony Hill, was a professor at Ohio State. It was the inspiration behind us starting the company when he was taking care wow. of his 98-year-old mother, uh, Flavor Booker, in Seattle. So they're going to tell their story. It should be a, an amazing um, presentation. So if will you're there, there a, stop by. Will there be a video? Because uh, I'm uh, sure a lot there, of people want to see You it. know, I, I'm not sure about Southwest. Get a video. Southwest Get a video. policy on that. Yeah. yeah they <laughs> allow. Really they allow. Okay. And uh, oh, yeah. speaking, of, speaking of speaking, I have been invited. I'm just blown away by uh, uh, Capital Mac. One of the, it is the oldest user group for Apple uh, computers uh, in history. And they have so uh, graciously invited me to speak either physically or via Skype uh, at their users uh, meeting just before South by Southwest. So I'm honored to be uh, a part of that and, uh, and very thankful. So if I'm going to be so physically be there, I well, it, there's a lot of questions about that. I, I was planning to be there, but I have been called to do something else and it may conflict. But long, long story short, I was planning because obviously – with the food truck announcement, I was very excited. I'm gonna, I, I probably can get all the food truck I ever want because a lot of a lot of folks down there are really excited that I've done this for them, uh, tracking their food trucks. So that's uh, exciting. But Capital Mac, uh, I will give you more details about it. If it's just a Skype, uh, you'll get access to it. And if it's, uh, you know, uh, I'm physically there, I'm sure we'll get a video also. So I'm excited. How about you, Faisal? You got uh, 
come out to South by Southwest or you got bigger things going? No, uh, we're going to be covering uh, Money 2020 Europe. It's happening in Copenhagen wow. in April. Bam. So uh, five days of coverage around the coin is going to be there on ground. Yes. Trotting all over the place, you know, shoving That'll be awesome. people's faces, you know, faces and taking selfies and, you know, I don't know. Collecting there's a faces. rumor. There's a rumor you might be on a panel out there. Is that yeah, true? Yeah, yeah, of course. Wow. What's going on with that? What's going on with this panel? I'm, on, I'm, I'm moderating the panel on a subject that's close to my heart, which is money transfers, cross-border money transfers. So uh, I think a couple of CEOs from four different companies are there, so I'll be speaking on that panel. I might be able to speak, might be speaking on one other. I'm not sure. They haven't assigned it yet. And uh, I, again, if we can get some audio or video from that for our listeners, I think it would be amazing. Yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, convince people that, you know, if they can take 10, 15 minutes out and just, you know, quickly have a talk with us. The whole problem in a convention center is it's just too, way too noisy. And, you know, you need to sneak up somewhere else and, and sort of have them sit on a mic and, you know, at them but if nothing else we'll we'll you know we'll have the noise maybe we can do a live simulcast where all of us are doing a show and you have a local interview we might uh we might experiment with that that would yeah, be kind of fun scope right <laughs> yeah, yeah there one, you go. one thing we did uh one thing we did really successfully in the show this is this is a while back but when i was in new york at the tech stars uh tech stars incubator they were partnering with barclays bank and we went through and i talked to i think 10 companies mm -hmm. and we just went rapid fire we just it went great. you know yeah, 10 12 minutes 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 and that was awesome so if the there is an arrangement is, this is a you know it, it it's it's getting them out of their wherever they are and getting them somewhere else you know uh, to a booth or something like that, but it's relatively quiet so that you can have a very quick, even a even a five or a seven minute session with them. But you know, well, you, even if it's noisy, if you get close enough and huddle, you could probably get pretty yeah, good so we're sound. Taking, uh, yeah. those specific mics. I don't know what they're called. Uh, I don't uh, know. Lavalier? Uh, no, uh, not not lavalier mic. It's it's like one of those long sticks that they're. Very, oh, uh, very shotgun, shotgun, shotgun mic. mics. There you yeah. go. So I'm taking a shotgun mic with me. Uh, good idea. Because they are very, very focused, and you know, so you, uh, so they don't catch the surrounding noise. You totally cancel out everything off access. So, hey, Mike, uh, a friend of yours is going to have uh, a TV reality show. I know you know Jason. Yeah, we have Can to you, give uh, a plug. So, Jason, uh, Jason is a friend. He's an investor in Home Hero, and we regularly contribute to uh, his launch festival. So, uh, we're speaking this year at launch. And, uh, and I've personally gone up to Jason's incubator class twice now for his last two sessions and talked about how Home Hero sends updates, how we manage com investor communication. I actually just published a Medium article on this, and, uh, and it's had a lot of uh, great feedback. And now, this guy is lo Jay larger than life. You know him up, Jay up close Jay and personal. Is, yeah. is he the real deal, uh, saying oh, off-camera? Awesome. He would be, I would say, uh, you know, off-camera, he's incredibly smart, um, wow. incredibly motivated, and on camera, he's going to be extremely entertaining. I mean, there's not now, a second. Go look at it. This is going to be a reality the, show, you think? This like uh, really no, just a slice I, of life? I'm not sure how it actually plays out. It could be a reality show following the progression of the companies within the launch incubator. Um, so that wow. I would imagine that's how they're so, they'll sort of frame it. Um, I've heard rumors and I've actually been a part of early pilot conversations with a number of different accelerators um, down in Los Angeles. So they'll come to science and they'll come to 
um, you know, some of the other ones down there and they'll say, you know, we're exploring a pilot and they'll interview some founders. So as a part of those early conversations, I'm not personally particularly privy to the idea of, of dedicating a significant amount of time, but for Jason, you know, and it, and it becomes, it's interesting because what he has done is quite brilliant. Uh, he started with, you know, he's, he's a, he's a master of the media. So he started with inside.com, yeah. um, which is you know, the, the new news publisher. Then he has, the Launch Festival, which is one of, I think, the top technology uh, conferences in, in the during the year, huge. You know, thousands of people turn out. He's got the greatest speakers on board, and then on top of that, he does the consistent this week in startups. So he's got you know a video podcast that he brings on. And it's extremely well done, um, and he brings on the top founders, everyone you know from Uber to down the line, you know, hundreds of guys and women and. Uh, he does a fantastic job of of putting that all out there, right? So he has a lot of publicity. Now the question is, what do you do with it? And starting the launch incubator, I think, was brilliant because he says, okay, what's the number one problem that all investors face? Number one is deal flow. The more deal flow, the more access to better companies, the bet more hand, you know, the more choosy you could be, and the more money you're going to make, basically. So he gets fantastic deal flow. Uh, he's also the number one syndicate on AngelList, which is you know the biggest platform for for raising money for startups. Absolutely. So he's got all these things going, and I think the TV show is is probably at at this point uh, more of an exciting side piece than an integrated strategy. But at the end of the day, it gets some exposure. Um, it'll increase the quality of the candidates for the launch incubator, and I think it'll really put them on the map in a big way outside of tech, almost to where yeah. Shark Tank did um, yeah. for the world. I think maybe Shark another, kind of another Don Trump uh, in, in the making. You're fired. I don't know. Yeah, uh, but he's definitely not uh, Don Trump. Uh, so yeah. th- this is good. Do you know when it's going to be uh, broadcasting first? I know, I know Weinstein, you know, I Weinstein much, Company uh, is behind it, right? Yeah, I don't have too many insider information. I haven't talked to him about it, uh, but I know from the from the article that came out, it sounds like it is a a surefire thing that they're going to at least run a well, uh, a season pilot. We'll so. put it in the show notes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah find out. Well, I'll tell you, uh, interesting time for Amazon. It looks like, uh, 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 speaking of Southwest, Southwest Airlines is going to use Pay with Amazon. Now, this uh, anybody who's been listening to us for the very first shows, I've been predicting you know all sorts of new payment schema, and Pay with Amazon has been one of those that have been a reoccurring theme. And just like all things Jeff Bezos and Amazon, everybody thinks the guy has failed at something, you know, and they, they turn around 10 years later and say, my God, Amazon still, I remember when Amazon.com came out and everybody said, oh, this is going to fail. 10 years later, he's still doing it. He's not making money. 20 years. You know, the bottom line is pay with Amazon is always going to be there. It's going to continually grow. It is, uh, it should be on the radar screen of everybody in payments. I don't care if you're Visa, MasterCard. Stripe, Square, it doesn't matter. You better be watching what Amazon uh, is doing in payments and uh, even Facebook uh, and others. Why is it important? Because it is a one-click experience. Now, everybody says, well, I got to go and I got to enter in all my Amazon stuff. No, it's an OAuth type of environment. Once it's linked into the app, it goes through the Amazon experience. Now, why is that important? Well, a number of things, loyalty, rewards, points, layers of loyalty, rewards, and points. If one was very smart, they can get Southwest points, they can get Visa and MasterCard points, and other points that I'm telegraphing that Amazon and pay with Amazon will come 
to at some point. So um, where is Amazon right now? Uh, pay with Amazon? Well, I don't know. 25 million transactions a month. I think it's doing pretty well. That means not Amazon.com. That doesn't mean Amazon Marketplace. The 70% so these, of transactions. These, so these are, not, these are not necessarily catalysts by the phone. You don't need an Amazon phone in this scenario nope. to make it. This would be something integrated on the website. Uh, where I'm on Southwest Airlines, I'm cruising around, I got the new airplane that has Wi-Fi, and I go in and I pay my expensive $8 fee, and then it connects to Amazon as a payment option? Uh, basically, it'll have a button that already knows that you're logged in with Amazon. Amazon tracks you, unfortunately. Most people don't know this. Just like Facebook and Twitter does and LinkedIn. So as you go around the greater internet, uh, if you're logged into any of those, Google too, of course, uh, Apple doesn't. No. Uh, as you start floating around, it knows. So Amazon will know when you hit a, a website that uh, has pay with Amazon. And so the experience is going to be very much like using Apple Pay. Uh, In-app, on the web, in uh, on your mobile device, and also on any type of website, right? So what does it mean? It means that the entire data structure that you have at Amazon can be ported over to whoever you're working with. Name, address, phone number, email and address. Do you think, and do you think the, major, the major motivator for the mass media here or the mass market will be loyalty? I, I think that that's a significant um, of course. reason. But yeah, okay. So that would be why people start to use it, especially well, in the Southwest. It, it, loyalty and friction. You know, the thing is, what we again, forget, is Amazon is a commerce company, not a social media company. Uh, and they are porting out their payment technology and payment experience to the greater world. And over time, certain merchants are going to look at it and say, what, this is something I could actually utilize. Right now, they're saying, I don't want to give my data. I don't want to give my data up. So it's, it's one of those scenarios, and I expect it to grow. Uh, we'll be talking about it throughout this year. And I'm expecting a very large announcement from Amazon concerning this and loyalty in the next few months. So stay tuned. So there's an article out on the financial lives of undocumented immigrants. What are you guys? What do you guys think about it? Let's look at it from your perspective because you're seeing a lot of expatriate type of transactions in your sphere. What do you think it means from your from your world? Well, What's I mean, it like? Undocumented, you know. Uh, which is essentially what they call, I mean, undocumented and unbanked are two different things. So, you know, sure. in, in many cases they overlap. But undocumented is also the issue of, you know, how if, you, if you're undocumented, you know, this is money that's essentially flowing in the gray economy in most cases because it's very difficult to pay undocumented people legally and you keep it under the table. Uh, and that's a huge problem for many governments. But then the problem comes that even undocumented people cannot be banked, even if they wanted to be banked, because they don't exactly. have the, you know, the credentials to get banked. So this is, I guess, something that will be a hot point this election year in the U.S., for sure. Absolutely. This is a chicken or egg problem. Uh, I mean, we've had uh, none of the food on our tables would be there unless there were seasonal workers available to pick the crops. Most of the seasonal workers are doing jobs that... Um, uh, I would say people who are citizens of the country tend not to want to do. Or unfortunately, the labor pool uh, is in inner cities maybe, and the uh, need for the work is out in fields in uh, you know, central California and, uh, and the Midwest. 
So what happens is, and it has been happening since the inception of this country, is people would come in seasonally and, and, and pick this food and, and, and do it to a point that uh, it, it is a successful uh, business operation, meaning it doesn't cost outrageously large amounts of money. Now, there's a, a whole lot of debate about this, uh, certainly through the 40s and 50s, unionization and Che Guevara and all of these other types of things that were going on uh, brought it to the forefront. Now, in 2016, there is uh, talk about completely sealing off entry into the country unless you're under a very controlled setting. The question is, if you do it physically, uh, will you, through some other mechanism, allow documented workers to come in and pick these crops and do the other things that the average American unemployed person doesn't want to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's got a, it, it, it's, I mean, it's what? an interesting point. It's really, it's a hot topic now. And, 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 and as the election kind of pushes forward, yeah. in order to have the wall, you have to have a very seamless, like very seamless way of people becoming registered, engaging in temporary visas. And I think we are far from, there's a great organization called forward, dot yeah. us uh, initially founded by mark zuckerberg um to the you know he put in a, a considerable amount of money and they have representatives in every city and they work with a lot of companies like ours uh we we actively engage and help uh forward.us basically with the sole mission of making immigration seamless and making it easier for people to get in get get here legally uh work and stay and uh, the organ i think the organization has made great strides there's a lot of work to do but you can't build a wall unless you have an easy way for people to go in and out. And, not, and to, I not, think to, not to forget that there is a complete industry that, you know, basically uh, sucks the blood out, blood out of these people, you know, payday yeah. lending, cash checking, the, the ones with high interest rates where you get, I don't know, 40 cents to the dollar or something yeah. like that. And uh, they basically are taking advantage. Of, and it's, it's a huge industry, by the way. I mean, it's not, it's not in hundreds of millions, perhaps in billions of dollars. And remittances too, right, Faisal? I mean, the yeah, remittance but, services. Uh, that, undocumented yeah. people mostly do remittances through the Hawala channel, right? So they're doing. Yeah. They're, 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 that money is not even showing up on the radar, and the, and there's a lot of money. I mean, and, you know. and they're t- and they're being taken advantage of also, and and so it, it's a it's a it's a payments problem, of course. It's a banking problem. It's a finance problem. It's a philosophical problem. It's a political yeah, problem. I don't think so. You can have a a black or a white, right? So it has to be something where you sort of slowly morph into something else and um, and and then find a solution for it. You know, the, the, the big question is, are we ready in the United States to have a logical conversation about this? I mean, uh, there, there's extremes to it, and one would argue it, it is maybe necessary to bring awareness to it, but is it going to be a, uh, uh, a, a solution in 2016? You know, that's the big question. Yeah. Either way, something has to happen. You know, there, there's going to be a decision that gets made. So it's, you know, it's interesting to see how that how that sort of happens. Um, I'm going to jump, guys. I do have to run, uh, continue on with these topics. And for everyone else, I'll catch you next week. Thank you, Mike. You have a good day. All right. Okay. So uh, coming on to the next topic, getting rid of big currency notes. What do you think about that? The saying that the hundred dollar bill has to go away. And, your, uh, and there's a lot of pressure in EU to get rid of the 500-euro note. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. They We're say living that in a-, a $100 bill 
is 2.2 pounds to a million dollars in weight. And if they take the $10 bill, then that's 55 pounds to a million dollars. Exactly. You know, I'm a payments person. I've been tracking this for a long time. Uh, most of the economy in the United States is done on cash and checks. Uh, in fact, it's, it's, I don't have the exact number in front of me. It's, it's so much larger that credit card and debit card are a small function thereof. Now, some people would say, well, that's mortgage payments and business payments. You take that out of the equation, it's still orders of magnitude larger than credit cards I and agree. debit cards. And, and I actually have that uh, infographic, and we'll put it up in the show notes yeah. uh, as to the importance of cash over what people would seemingly think that, you know, debit cards rule or credit card rule. Exactly. And, and again, we're, we're technologists. We're speaking to an audience that tracks technology, and they look at the numbers that you know Visa does and Mastercard, and they are blown away by that. And then when you look at what's going on in checks and cash, it's it's confounding. It is confusing to but people. Also, but but also look at it this way: that in the U.S. today, trying to pay with a hundred dollar bill is almost next to impossible in many places. Well, yeah, because, you know, what has happened is we've come to a different world where cash is now being viewed as being uh, somebody trying to be off. Yeah, suspicious. And, you know, there's good and bads to this. And just like we were talking about robotics and, and, and AI. And the bad is that, you know, businesses can actually refuse your business, your $100 uh, bill legally, provided no debt has been occurred. Exactly. So the the question is, where does, where does this bring us uh, from a, uh, a philosophical standpoint, a financial standpoint, just like everything else, and a political standpoint? Uh, there's so many reasons for this, and there's a lot of reasons against it. And, you know, one of the reasons is cost. To be frank about it, one of the reasons why cash still dominates a lot of industries isn't so much to be illegal although some of it may be underreported, it is because there's a cost function that is significantly lower when cash is involved or checks than when any other payment system, including Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin has the prospect of being devalued in a, a nanosecond, and that is a cost function that has to be normalized, well, you know, and nobody has addressed that. Correct. Of, uh, Dwala wrote an, a blog article which said that, you know, if I give you $100 and you give it back to me, I have $100. If I give it back to you, you have $100. And we could go on and on and on and we sure. still have $100. But if we did the same thing with a credit card, if I you gave me or PayPal, if you gave me $100 and I gave it back to you, you know, with the two point, what is it, 75% and yeah. 30 cents a transaction, we would only be able to do that 79 times before that money yeah. goes to zero. So yeah, I 79. So I guess that's why there is a some sort of a relevance where cash well, is concerned, you know? Yeah, and, and there's some complexity because there's a meta issue of inflation and deflation and money buying power because the, the same $100 that I used in 1919 is, uh, is uh, not going to be the same $100 value well, I mean, in I mean, that, 2019. That's fine. I mean, you know, barring the, 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 the purchasing power of the dollar going down, but I'm talking, of, let's say, in a single day, if you and I were to exchange money back and forth 100 times. 79 times, it, it'll be gone. Yeah, absolutely. So the question remains, um, 
that first, uh, that's a great thought experiment. In reality, it, it it doesn't really make as much sense because people aren't booting the money back and forth. But the cost to move money, the cost to acquire money, and then the big meta issue is what is the value purchasing power of the quote unquote money you're using. These are all part of the same sphere. And again, in payments today, we're focusing on just moving it. I've I got to tell you, I've come across some very creative entrepreneurs that are looking at the bigger meta issue is buying power. And in the future, your buying power is really going to be what's the transaction mechanism. You know, what it, you know, one might argue that it's close to what your credit rating is, but it's a much more complex yeah, but, but much let's more look useful at it from thing. from a retail level right now. I mean, you know, sure. Burger King is not accepting $100, right? Neither is McDonald's, neither is your grocery store. I mean, it, people are paying in $20 bills, $10 bills, and $50 bills, and that's it. And, you know, even 50 is uh, suspicious in many ways. But $100 yes. bill, if it were to vanish from the U.S. economy, does it really matter? Uh, it, it, it would in contracting services. It would be in car sales and things of that nature. There's still a lot of people that get their money in cash. They hold on to it in cash. And it comes down to the same scenario we talked about earlier is about uh, uh, not undocumented workers, but unbanked. And, you know, if you looked at the unbanked economy and you really looked at it with the right mechanisms, you're looking at a significantly large cross-section of population. And there's a lot of reasons why they don't have banks, you know, uh, in their life. And doing that is not going to make a huge dent necessarily with those folks. It's going to complicate their life more. But the biggest thing that one must think about is the slippery slope of the philosophical argument when will it be deemed that the dollar bill is uh, is suspect? When will it be deemed that using any form of non-traceable currency is suspect? And again, if you have nothing to hide, what do you have to worry about? That's the world we're moving into. Uh, and, and that's not the world that United States was about. You know, it wasn't what formed okay, so this let, country. Let's, let's, take the, uh, let's take the suspicious element out. What about the unbanked? I mean, there are millions of millions of people in the U.S. Sure. Who, are, who are unbanked who still rely on cash. What do you do about them? Are you going to if you change if you retract the hundred dollars from the economy from its from circulation, would you alter your banking system to ensure that these people can somehow be banked? It's not going to happen. See, that's the, that's what's going on because these things are not thought of holistically. Uh, every one of these decisions, when they're made for a political reason, and the people that bring them up are bringing them up for always the good reason. Whenever you see new laws, it's always because somebody gets hurt. And then somebody says there ought to be a law, and then somebody comes up and says, I'm going to make a law. And then we don't, and we have layer upon layer upon layer. Every generation has more and more laws, more and more complexity, more and more requirements, more and more reporting, more and more things become illegal. And if you really map this out, as you create more laws, as you criminalize just using a currency, for example, then you have to ask, why was a currency in place to begin with? Why weren't banknotes being used? And if you look at the turn of the century, in, uh, you know, 1900s, uh, the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, there was over 100,000 different currencies, 100,000. People were wow. issuing their own notes. Now, and, and, and you would imagine that this was chaos. It was terrible. But guess what? We got there to here. And what was going on back then was what I was talking about 
before and that's the buying power. All right. So why would I take, why would I take railroad currency over uh, legal tender? Well, it turned out that if I was a railroad, railroad worker and I got paid in railroad currency, I could go to the railroad store, uh, you know, let's call it the employee stores, because mm-hmm. a lot of railroad towns in the United States, a lot of towns were built by the railroad, and you were shopping in a railroad store whether you were a local or not. But if you were using railroad currency, you could buy more goods. You literally, in, in some cases, it was nine to one. So you could buy nine times more on railroad currency than you could with a U.S. dollar. And this is not written about very often. You have to dig deep in history. When I tell people this the first time, uh, they, their mouth drops. The railroad currency was nine times more powerful than the U.S. dollar at that time? Yes, it was. Wow. Yes, it was. And it had nothing to do with the full faith and anything like that. So it had to I. do... It had to do with the fact that buying power is more important to an individual than the actual conveyance mechanism. And they didn't care. Did the railroad, did they think the railroad was going to go out of business tomorrow? No, not really, because it was central to their life. They knew it was bringing goods and services. They worked in the business, so they knew how important it was to the economy. They saw the eminent domain and a manifest destiny that was taking over the growth of America. And this is a unique Americana experience. And so when, when we, go, we could do the same thing with steel mills. We can do it with coal mines. All of these businesses had their own currencies. And again, we, out of laws and rule, we said, well, let's, this is craziness. Let's eliminate all this complexity. There was no outcry. There was no, well, let's say this. There was some outcry mm-hmm. when we had the stock market failure in the 20s because some of the companies that had their currencies, even before that, it was being regulated because there was a Federal Reserve that was being formed and you know nobody wants competition. And if you control the laws, you can out off your competition and you can do it legally and ethically and morally. And so it was outlawed. So these, these currencies, banknotes, people say, what's a banknote today? And a banknote was a bank issuing their own currency. And they were doing on the full faith of what they had in the bank, uh, et cetera. So all of these things, I, I digress, but all of these things became valuable because of the intrinsic value that the individual found within that particular currency. And this is what's past is prologue. And whenever somebody asks me about what's going to explode, you know, what's going to take over, why would somebody use Amazon Pay? Why would somebody use Alipay or Stars, uh, Starbucks Stars to pay for goods? And what was the most, uh, what was the most, the largest reward system in the United States? By the way, it had 79% of every man, woman, and child in the United States using that loyalty system, and most people don't even know it existed. So there's all of these things that have taken place in history, and we have people inventing new things. But the reality is the past has already informed us how these things play out. The past has already informed us why certain laws are in effect, why certain things happen. And we could argue that the railroad workers were unbanked. These people did not go to a bank. Banks were rare occurrences. The savings and loans were just starting at the turn of the century of the Industrial Revolution in the 1900s and 1800s. And you couldn't get a, a mortgage. If you, if you were going to buy a house, you either traded 
a couple of chickens and a few horses and whatever. You took uh, uh, you took over the land rush uh, that the United States was uh, given to try to populate uh, wild territories that were that were inhabited by natives uh, that had been there for thousands of years, or some other mechanism, or you rented, or you did uh, sharecropping, or you did other forms of ways to climb the ladder of success. Sharecropping was probably the most valuable tool. Uh, in the beginnings of the uh, 1900s in Texas, primarily dry farming, et cetera, cattle farming. And this, this is where the individual got in and they got currency from the owner of the land. They were, again, you know, I needed some eggs. Now, some people would say, well, this is barter. Sure, you could put that term on it. What we're doing is we're creating currency. The very first Sumerian ring coin. What, what was it called? A shekel. And what, is that, what does that mean? It's Sumerian for share of wheat. So the coin was a manifestation of your share of wheat. What did the wheat represent to these individuals? It represented a commodity of food. It, it, it guaranteed that if they grew their wheat, that when the cold came and the weather came where they had no food and not everybody was eating you know, cows and pigs and chickens and everything. I mean, realistically, the staple diet was roots, nuts, fruit, and wheat, and maybe a little piece of meat every now and then. And so the share of wheat was symbolic to the success of that individual. And the more shekels that they accumulated, loyalty points, if you will, uh, I own a, quite a few of them. They would, they would string them on a leather strip and hold them out around their neck or hold them on their wrist. And it would be a way to sort of, if you're a young male, It'd be a way to sort of show your plumage to a female. <laughs> really? That I have, yes, I have 10 shekels on my, uh, on my wrist. And, and it's funny how we, a lot of jewelry me, that... I got a dollar, huh? Yeah, but the shekel was actually extremely valuable. Now, that was the first abstraction currency. And what that really means is that the underlying brass... This is one of the first, the, the, the bronze, it was really bronze, bronze age, right? It was even pre-bronze, but they somehow had bronze. I don't know how that happened. So uh, they had these bronze brass uh, uh, coil, you know, they're loops. They look like a washer, you know. Um, they don't look valuable today. But for gosh sakes, if we were sitting in their culture at that moment in time, we would kill each other unfortunately, over getting one of these shekels. That was towards the later part of the, uh, the, the um, culture. It might have been one of the debates. if a plumber from, t from today you know, got transported back in time. <laughs> exactly. So, again, look at the abstraction. So here we are today, and we're going back into abstraction, paper, dollar, whether it has a, a one with three zeros, six zeros, or whatever. It's an abstraction of, of what your value is in this world. right? Yes. And we're sharecroppers. We're, see, all of us, even in Pakistan, we're all sharecroppers. The, the, the concept of this has not changed. It's just expanded on a much larger basis. And instead of landowners, you have bankers and you have, uh, you know, central bankers. And, and this is not a conspiracy. It's not a dark thing. It just is. And so now the underlying currency, whether it's a digit on a screen that's trackable, uh, or a number of zeros on a piece of paper that is still trackable, it doesn't matter. So what it really comes down to is, as again, it's a theme in this show, probably all the shows, is philosophically what does this all mean? It means that 
if you start abstracting your currency to the point that it is just a bunch of numbers on a cloud, all things change when you don't have access to that cloud or the, or the wrong people get the gatekeeping access to that cloud. Because oh, it's not local. Over, Brian. We it, well, the start of the show, right? It, it, it is close to that. But it, listen, all I believe that all good lawmakers start out with a really good premise and they don't ever predict that a dark force might infect their world 100, 200, 300 years. The beauty of the American founding fathers, as antiquated as it is in much many people's minds, is they understood humanity and they understood that power is corruptible to anybody. It doesn't matter what yeah, your intentions are. The, the fundamentals were great. Uh, somehow they've been diluted now. Uh, more, because more now we're convinced, things, but, but, we're yeah, convinced that the world is too complex. We're convinced that the world is so complex that we need somebody whose entire life is dedicated to regulating and legislating. And I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but we've been con conditioned to believe that, my gosh, the only person that could understand this is somebody who was born reading the books of international trade and now is 70 odd years old and they're ready now to preside over this world economy and everything. Now, the thing is, there's nothing complex about the world economy at all. There's nothing complex about your economy. You, you know, you have a buying power, you have a credit power, that's it. You know, all, and, and, and you have a worth, if you will. And that's not changed since the beginning of time. Whether it's communist, socialist, capitalist, you know, modified this, it's all exactly the same. And all the laws are exactly the same. The, the difference is that we're, we're fractionalizing it down to the level that it clogs the pipes. When you looked at the fall of the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. and even, um, even when you look at the fall of the extended Greek Empire and Alexander the Great, Alexander, you know, obviously a conqueror, but also as a statesman understood that if you created more than X number of laws per, per session, that at some future date, it will become a cesspool. Literally, that, I don't remember the Greek word for cesspool, but that's what it would become. And when you look at the fall of the Roman Empire, and we can look at a lot of different things, the debasing of this and all that, but when you see the disconnect between the Caesars and the Senate and what was known as Capitol Hill, yeah, it's funny, it's still known as Capitol Hill today, but there was a Capitol Hill in, in Rome. And when you look at what was going on as far as laws, they were able to figure out towards the end that every single new law had a financial benefit to one industry or one group of individuals over another. And so they started realizing that at the same time, it so uh, complexed their system that ultimately it fell apart. Ultimately, the will of the people stopped defending it because they saw that but they made it the greater complex as good. well, right? I mean, you have to understand that. They made it so complex that the creation of money, the management of money, the distribution of money was only in the hands of very few people. It, it sounds familiar. 
because it is the past and prologue. These things will always... I mean, I, always I, I have a book in front of me, and this is actually a fraction reserve, and I want to quote uh, a, a paragraph from it, and I quote, There is no system that is taken for granted or misunderstood as the monetary system. Taking on nearly religious proportions, the established monetary institutions exist as one of the most unquestioned forms of faith there is. How money is created, the policies by which, by which it is governed, how it truly affects society are unregistered interests of the great majority of the population. And whether we are not aware of it or not, the lifeblood of our established institutions and thus society itself is money. Therefore, understanding this institution of monetary policy is critical to understanding why our lives are the way they are. Unfortunately, and this is very important, economics is viewed with confusion and boredom. Endless streams of financial jargon coupled with intimidating mathematics quickly, quickly deters people from, attempting, from attempts at understanding. However, the fact is complexity is so seated within the financial system is a mere mask designed to conceal one of the most paralyzing structures humanity has ever endured, unquote. Faisal, th- this, is, this is brilliant. And, and it goes down to something that, uh, to take a, a slight sidetrack, and it has nothing to do with religion. So a guy by the name of King James. And there are a group Bible. of people, yeah, well, more than that. He was uh, the divine right of kings, etc. And it was a group of people called the pilgrims and we know them as the pilgrims we think they have funny shoes with belt buckles and and that they were so puritan in their in their ways what we don't understand is the real history versus what is the pop history of what the pilgrims were about and one would argue is about religious freedom it was about this it was about that now actually it was about individual liberty because it had not so much to do with about their faith and worship they they saw a debasing of their religion, their culture, and frankly, they didn't think that the the king had a divine right of anything. They were I mean, rebels. The peasants uh, protested to this when the King James Bible was being written down, and in many, Latin, many many chapters were not included in which they had the peasants thought should have been in in the Bible. Well, and let's go into the the, the whole thing of what happened. It's all about control, it, right? It, well, of course not, never. You know, the question is, why was the Bible always in Latin? Why were most masses in Latin? The, the reason was the same reason why doctors write in Latin, lawyers write in, in Latin still and talk in Latin or use Latin phrases where definitions of the word are not even close to the same definition that we have in common use in English. And then we go up and, and we start looking at mathematics and physics. We look at uh, uh, economics. We look at any priesthood, Right. Any priesthood, what we do is we create a boredom and a barrier so that it is not accessible to the common individual because you don't have the wherewithal to understand what I know. You don't have the ability to read Latin. You don't, well, Let's go backwards. You don't have the ability to read Latin and you don't need it because you could never understood, understand the word of God or the word that's in his Bible. So you commoners don't need it. Now, you want to know what broke all this up? The first internet. It was called the printing press. See, when what happened was nobody wanted, the kings of Europe did not want to put the uh, English Bible out. It was done as a rebellious act, and you would have had your entrails at all four corners separated with your head on a stick if you were, if you were found printing an English-language version of the Bible prior to King James doing his little number. And... What this is again, it has nothing to do with religion ultimately. It has to do with 
you know, the control of information and the cat out of the bag. Once, once it was understood that you can't shut down these printing presses, then they said, well, we better take over the narrative and we better be able to shape the, the narrative the way we want it. So it, it was narrated in a way of revisionist history that the kings got behind the Bible in English and we went and extended it. But if you look at Francis Bacon and you look at Shakespeare, who may in fact have been the same person, that's another thing. They were enhancing the English language and uh, for Mary Tudor, uh, you know, a little uh, before and after this in some ways. And these individuals said, if we don't create a language where everybody can understand common concepts easily, we as a country will fall apart. Because we are moving into, this will sound very familiar, into a very complex world where the common man in the street or in the field needs to understand things that are going to affect the next 20 generations. So Francis Bacon wrote The New Atlantis. And uh, it's funny because that whole paradigm is in, in, incredible because if you trace Atlantis and Sauron and and uh, what a lot of people think is metaphysical bullshit, I, I challenge them to really read the history. Uh, you know, you go all the way up to Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon really discovered the United States, and well, I would say directly. Uh, certainly, it was not a guy named Christopher Columbus. <laughs> we know that as an absolute fact. We, yeah. and, and, and we know that it even predated what we would call Norsemen or Vikings today. Uh, as far as European enlightenment discovering this. Now, what does this all have to do with this? What I'm saying is in a small, and, I, and again, this could be boring to people. I think it's radically exciting. It is our parents and grandparents, your parents, you know, you're, you're related to, uh, to Genghis Khan and, and uh, Alexander the Great. There's no doubt about it, you know, just with your name and et cetera. Uh, these people are just, we're just as much related as anybody else on this planet, genetically. All this other story that, you know, somehow we were fractionalized because of mountain ranges, it's all BS. It's not even true. Our DNA has been uh, spread far and wide all around this globe. So coming back to focus, value. So if you and I were sitting in Sumeria right now, we were talking about, wow, what does this coin, this shekel represent? In the first generation that it came out, it was nothing. It was no big deal. It was saying, well, you know, we gave, we gave our wheat to the temple. It sounds like a religious act. The temple was actually part of government. It was interrelated. They didn't separate these things for a lot of reasons. Uh, and this was our proof. It was a reward point. It was a Starbucks star that came back. So you come to the temple and you gave a, sh uh, a share of wheat, a shekel, and you got back a Sumerian ring coin. That's all it was. It wasn't money. It wasn't we're going to fractionalize this, we're going to do this. It was just an acknowledgement that you gave. Now, it wasn't paying taxes. It was something deeply and profoundly important to them. They were supporting all of their families together because they had just come from cultures where they didn't support each other. And they were living desperate lives in different clans. And they said, you know, our clans have come together and we formed what we call a government. And we know that for the common of all of us, that we have to form a republic. It was the first republics. You know, and, and they were democratic republics. So that's not pure democracy where 
the will of everybody can overtake the will of the individual. There's a republic and there was a, uh, you know, the Code of Hamabre and, and all these different uh, Sumerian writings that we still don't have decoded. Do you know that 97% of all Sumerian writings have not been decoded? No, uh, I don't know that. Nearly, I nearly. The stone took care of everything. Nope, nope. Unfortunately, a lot of them have been stolen. Uh, with that part of the world being interestingly historically active right now, during the uprisings from Egypt all the way into Iraq and Iran, uh, the 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 antiquities were stolen, and the, what was stolen were things that were not even um, uh, translated. And when I say Decoded. I really mean decoded because translations don't necessarily read into the depth of what some of these cultures are talking about. They talked. I wouldn't say it's in code. Uh, we call it in in in. Uh, well, I, I guess you could call it the green language. Somebody can go and look that up. It, it, it's it's a dimensionality of way we speak. It's the way we use acronyms today. If you were to say the word FBI today uh, and you write it down. We know what it means. It's a law enforcement institution. They're involved with Apple right now, et cetera. But uh, a thousand years from now, if we were trying to decode what those symbols mean, we, we would spend maybe years trying to say, well, we know what F means. It's uh, this many characters in their language. We know what B means and we know what I, and they keep repeating it in this pattern. I wonder how, why it's so important. This is what's missing with a lot of symbolic language. See, the context, earlier languages, right? not only context, but dimensional meaning. Egyptian, uh, early Egyptian, more importantly, is much more cleaner and much more. It's funny. If you look at the earlier languages, they look more refined and more perfected than the later versions of the languages. So it was the same with Sumerian. As you look in very early uh, proto-Sumerian, it's highly stylized, highly uh, it's incredibly beautiful, but it's very difficult for uh, individuals to understand what it really says uh, because that knowledge has been lost. There are a few people understand it, but a lot of it has to do with the, the, the very first moment when we as a culture, human beings, started understand, understanding what symbolic currencies meant. And, and a couple of generations, again, you got to remember Sumerian culture is well over – if you really, really follow it, well over 10,000 years old. I mean, much older than any of our current cultures. Much, much older. And uh, Egyptians probably close to 15, 20,000 years old. Again, this is counter to what you would read in history books. But I argue that the uh, evidence is firm in that. And so we have this history that informs us of what happened. And Roman culture, and again, even then, one could argue whether that start, did it start uh, with a, a proto-culture before that and before that. You know, we start looking at all of it and we say, what happened to all these cultures? What brought them to the end? You know, and we always, there's always the, 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 the go-tos. Uh, they uh, killed each other in war. Why? What, 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 it was they've stable for so long. What happened? Uh, a, a plague wiped them out. No, I, probably not. Um, they ran out of food. No, that's probably extremely unlikely. Uh, all of these go-tos are just intellectual weaklings as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and, and when you really read the history, it's much more complex. But it has a lot to do with this. The people who write the current narrative history are the victors. And sometimes you are in a long chain of victories 
that you may not be very proud of. The fact that we're here and our forefathers survived, you over there, me over here, we may have done things in the past, great generations ago, that if today under the spotlight of our revisionist thinking, even with all the knowledge present, we may not be so proud of those things. On the other side of it, we may be exceedingly proud, but that's the life. That's the way the world works. Coming back to today and now, anytime we go and we have these demarcation points where we're going to eliminate one form of currency, one form of government, one form of communication, whatever, it's so easy to forget that other cultures did this already. They had repercussions from it. There was good and bad. And there's nothing that we can do as human beings that hasn't been done already. Nothing. It can be more modernized. It can, we can uh, convince ourselves that we are oh so much more complex. But, you know, going back to King James and the, and the pilgrims, the thing we don't understand is the people that left, first, they didn't leave England. They went to, to Holland and they went back to England. They went back. I mean, when you follow what these folks went through to find what they believed ultimately was liberty, freedom, the ability to express themselves and think themselves and to be their own people and carrying a lot of the work of Francis Bacon with them, even though he was not, you know, down there, same uh, belief of reformation. What we see they had gone through, that's where it really starts changing your mind about looking about modern culture. And you can pick any period in time, any part of the world, and you start really examining it. It's hard. It's not an easy thing because it's not just history reading history. Itself, Brian, right? Exactly. So is it a good thing? Yeah, it's a good thing maybe for certain types of uh, transactions, yes. But is it a meta good thing to eliminate currency as we know it and replace it? And again, I'm a payments guy. And replace it 100% with the digits on somebody's computer or blockchain even? I don't know. I, I, I don't, you know, it's just like anything else we talked about in the show today. Uh, you know, do I want to put my essence in a robotic body and, and, and live in that for 100 million generations? And, and then am I really the, the prime, you know, results of human evolution? I don't know. See, the thing is, I, I don't pretend to know these answers. I'm not saying I'm pro or against any of these philosophical, religious, or uh, you know, financial movements. I'm just saying that there's a subsection of individuals that hopefully are going to rise up and read, learn, share knowledge, and help form the future. There's going to be, a, a, unfortunately, a much larger group that will sit on the sidelines and say, it's too complex. It's too hard for me to understand. Uh, this is too esoteric. Well, you're talking about Sumerian ring coin. I, I went to sleep right when you said that. History is boring. You know, all I could say is no subject under the sun is boring unless you make it that way. Uh, we are a human I discovery system. I agree with you. Well, Brian, as always, very illuminating. Thank you very much for your time. It's time for us to wrap it up. And Thank we'll you, Faisal speak to you next week and folks if you have any questions or any comments please do get in touch with us thank you and speak next week thank you take care, take care.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.